Hello and welcome to Macro Matters, the economics and politics podcast from Aberdeen Standard Investments. My name is Paul Diggle and along with my co-host Stephanie Kelly, we're guiding you through the macroeconomic and political themes which are driving global markets. And today we're talking about the global semiconductor shortage, its causes, consequences and market implications. Semiconductor chips are in short supply and high demand at the moment. Semis are technologically hard to make. Production is highly concentrated in the likes of Taiwan and Korea. Yet these chips are in an ever increasing share of the goods that global consumers buy. So a semiconductor shortage is akin to a modern day oil shock with widespread consequences for economic activity, inflation and even geopolitics. So I'm really excited to discuss this topic with Robert Gilhui and Sri Kutchugavindan, two of our senior economists in the Aberdeen Standard Investment Research Institute. Bob and Sri, welcome back to Macro Matters. Thanks for having us. Thank you. So Bob, let's start with you. Why is there a global semiconductor shortage? Okay, well, first of all, I guess there's been, there's been a few kind of idiosyncratic uh, issues affecting supply in some industries, for example, but a fire at a Japanese factory that was specialised in semiconductors for autos. We had earlier some US regulatory action against Huawei in China. And that was rumoured to have led to kind of some, some emergency stockpiling by other firms within China. I'd probably say more generally, it just represents you know, a combination of very long lead times for semiconductors to ramp up production. You know, it's very capital intensive, very specialised, especially at the top end. Uh, and then it's just that's just made it very hard to deal with what's turned out to be just much stronger than expected global demand. Great. So as you say, a lot of supply side issues which have either have held back um, supply. And Bob, why has demand been so strong? Because we've been living through a massive negative global economic shock for much of the past year, which you would expect to push down on demand. But actually, demand for semis has been extremely strong. Perhaps you can explain why that's been the case. Yeah, that's right. You know, this has been one of the big surprises, I think, of the, the COVID shock, particularly compared to the global financial crisis, where you know goods demand did fall clearly. But you know, the nature of the COVID shock has definitely mattered here. Uh, you know, higher demand for work from home, school from home, and entertainment from home. As you know, we've just not been able to go out and enjoy the services that we would do so uh, normally. You know, we don't have a kind of comparable data for all countries, but I've been really struck that the US share of goods consumption uh, has jumped by about four percentage points. And that's really quite remarkable. Uh, and, you know, we also we've seen global trade, which you might have expected to take a big hit, given the nature of the, sorry, given the huge shock to the global economy. But, you know, global trade, especially that originating uh, from greater China, relinked to semis, it's been running at levels far above you know, your sort of pre-COVID norms, you know, despite many economies still having room to catch up yeah it strikes me that the the a lot of semiconductor producers expected this big negative demand shock and partly that occurred early on when a lot of autos orders of, of semis were cancelled paired back production and then it turned out that actually as you explained bob the demand for semis was actually very strong due to the nature of the covid shop shock and the other thing this underlines for me is just how widespread semiconductor chips are in our economy now they are in everything and in, and in increasing amounts as well you know, the amount of semis in an electric vehicle is much more than a traditional petrol car 
the new PlayStation, the latest iPhone, all these things are extremely chip intensive. And I think that that that's an important change in the structure of our economy. This is really highlighted. But let's talk about how long all this might last then. At what point are um, global semiconductor producers, the foundries that make semiconductors going to be able to meet this 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 rise in demand and this shortage uh, be alleviated? Yeah, so I guess there's kind of two two important factors here. You know, one we do kind of think some of the supply constraints that we've seen, uh, you know, should be unwinding perhaps towards the end of this year. So we might see some easing on that front. You know, maybe in kind of Q3 or early Q4, and that could kind of ease some pressures on kind of uh, availability, if you will. Um, but I guess the other part is going to be related to really this kind of normalisation in the rest of the economy. So to the extent that which goods demand has been this uncharacteristically strong, will it stay that way or will it kind of ease off as uh, as services kind of become available? You know, restrictions are eased, the populations are vaccinated and they may be going uh, to, to just kind of back to services rather than kind of buying uh, buying goods. You know, there's a limit to, to how many uh, uh, computer equipment, how much computer equipment you want, or that's certainly something I always I always tell my kids anyway. <laughs> Brilliant. Yeah. So supply should eventually respond and demand itself is, is going to change um, away from these chip intensive um, goods. But I suppose when when you require such large factories of such large amount of investment, such big leads time, there is a limit to the price elasticity of supply presented by that. Yeah. Sri, let's talk then about the implications this has had. Uh, we want to talk about inflation, but let's first talk about the production implications, because as we were saying, semiconductors are in a lot of things now, yes. and they've impacted the production of a lot of goods. And the real, the biggest impact has been in, in autos, right, in car production. Absolutely, yes. I mean, as you say, but, I mean, this comes through in a lot of household goods, such as washing machines, Pelotons, Playstations have been hit as well, consoles have been, uh, supply has been restricted, but autos has been the key focus and really bore the brunt of the supply chain disruption. So countries like Japan and Germany, we've seen a big impact there in terms of their uh, industrial production and auto sectors there. Um, partly because they've really been running on lean, uh, just-in-time production, so there was very little room for manoeuvre there. Um, there was, as Bob has mentioned, there was a fire, if we take Japan as an example, there was a fire at Renesas, which is a chip maker. It accounts for around 8% of Japan's semi, um, semiconductor production for autos, about 6% of the global uh, auto semi-supply. Um, this led to quite a sharp decline in Japan's um, auto production, industrial production as well. And there are also reports of um, prices from TSMC, which is one of the main producers in Taiwan, um, one of the late, largest contract producers of chips. Now they're raising the prices for auto semiconductors and that really compounds the problem, broader supply constraints and shipping costs. And it's it's a real um, headache for the, for the industry at the moment. Um, but we do think that this is likely to start easing in the second half of this year. And there have been some, uh, the industry has started to adapt. For example, um, there are different types of semiconductors used for different parts of the car. So the high tech leading edge tech is used in um, assisted um, driving systems. And some cars are being produced without that and just being using the um, lower end older tech chips. So there are some changes that uh, um, producers can, can adapt to. Great, but nonetheless, some some really big impacts, um, which are, are concentrated in certain economies as well, auto-intensive economies. Yes, and, and also longer term, 
uh, structural demand is there as well. So this is this we're just talking right at the moment about the near term uh, issues, but we also have the longer term structural demand for for chips from five G, AI, healthcare, electric vehicles. There's a lot of changes to come in terms of the demand um, over the coming years. Yeah, it only seems to be going in one in one direction. Yeah. <laughs> So what about the inflation implications then? Because you've been looking at this very closely, Sri, in some of our work at Avenue Standard Investments. And can we detect a direct influence of chip prices in things like headline inflation indices? Is our chips yet a big enough part of the inflation basket that they actually influence headline inflation at this point? Well, it's very difficult to see how uh, chip prices are feeding through. First of all, what is a chip price? There are different types of chips and they all have different prices and they all they will have um, different movements. So some high end could be less uh, less volatile than the, the lower end uh, chip. So it's a very diverse set of prices. So we use various proxies to try and um, test how it goes through into headline inflation. But really, it's it's we're seeing this pushing through in some subcomponents of PPI or subcomponents of import prices. It doesn't directly feed into into CPI. It's very dispersed, as you said. It goes through different um, sectors, different goods, and some of these. If we go back to the example of autos, um, these costs are quite small relative to the production of the car. So you can see a lot of this is going to be absorbed in margins. Um, uh, and in some cases, there they, they could be some pipeline pressures, again, in the broader context of other supply chain disruptions. It has been a, a, bit, a bit of a headache. But from, from the tests that we've done, um, we've seen these kind of price increases before. We've seen them in 2016, 2017. They don't necessarily feed into headline inflation. It's not enough to really trigger a, a, a shift in inflationary pressures. That would be one thing. The other thing is to say that... Um, Generally, uh, semiconductors or tech can be quite disinflationary. We have quality improvements, and these can push down technology prices as processing power increases, as a hedonic adjustment that's made. So this tends to be quite disinflationary rather than, than an inflationary process. Yeah, I think that's a really important point. Technological change is fundamentally disinflationary. It might not push down on the observed price of a good, but if the quality of that good is getting constantly better, if our computers are constantly okay. faster, that is actually disinflationary once exactly. you account for the quality adjustment. But you mentioned there three broader supply chain disruptions because this chip shortage comes at a time when global supply chains are disrupted in all sorts of ways post-pandemic. The Suez Canal blockage was obviously a sort of really yeah. high-profile, obvious example of that. But there's been a lot of other examples at the same time mm. as demand has been rebounding strongly. And is this is this combination of supply chain disruptions and, and, and strong demand causing price pressures elsewhere in the economy? Is this a sustained rise in prices that we're seeing? Well, we've, we've been talking about this a lot. Um, it, it is much more general. It's not just um, confined to semiconductors and autos. This is a broader, broader issue. Um, but we're seeing that these are pandemic-related distortions that are likely to be uh, transitory we are going to see um, this feeding through into core inflation later on in the year. There are um, some price pressures and volatility in inflation going into the end of the year. As we move into next year, then we'll see a cleaner picture in terms of how inflation responding to the main fundamental drivers, such as the output gap, inflation expectations, central bank policy. Um, so those things will become much more evident as we move into next year. But at the moment, 
for now, we have a lot of distortions in play, whether it's measurement issues or supply constraints. And Bob, are, so at the top, I made a comparison between semiconductors now and oil in the past as sort of a key ingredient, almost a base commodity of the global economy. And, and that might be a reason why the semi shortage is so important. It's really grabbed market attention. Do you think that comparison is fair? Should we think about these as being akin to each other? Or is it the case that you know, semis are just not like oil? You can produce them elsewhere or how, how do you feel about that comparison yeah so I, th- I think this comparison has got got some some merits for so for example um you could think of kind of currently semiconductor production is very uh very much based in in asia in particular you know there are some concerns about risks uh or geopolitical risks around taiwan uh and of course samsung is the other major contributor major producer of high-end uh, semiconductors, and clearly it's got its uh, neighbour, the north of, of North Korea. So you, you do have roughly 80%, if not 100%, when you just look at the top end of semiconductors in what you might consider kind of challenging or kind of risky regions. And it's not just geopolitics, there's this kind of natural risk as well. You know, Taiwan sitting uh, on a fault line, so risk of earthquakes there. And, you know, Taiwan's also been affected by kind of water shortages most recently, you know, they've had to divert water away from farmland to kind of keep uh, the TSMC foundries uh, running there. But I, I think, you know, f- fundamentally, is it like oil? Well, no, not really. You know, you're kind of limited in where oil is geographically in the world. You know, things change a little bit with shale, but you've still got to basically dig it out wherever it is. Clearly, over the kind of long run, you know, you can move semiconductor manufacturing you can increase supply uh, by more you're not constrained in the same way as oil so i think in those respects that kind of analogy starts breaking down you know it breaks down quite quickly once you get stuck into that mm-hmm. so i think that brings us nicely to sort of the final topic we want to deal with here which is the the geostrategic aspects of semiconductor production and the shortage because as we've said these uh, chips are mainly produced in Taiwan and Korea potentially politically volatile parts of the world or at least potentially facing sort of political risks at least entail scenarios one of those is proximity to China and maybe there are sort of extreme tail scenarios involving Taiwan and China but more broadly chip production has become an important aspect of global geostrategic competition and that's because China wants I think to in-house more of this production the EU and the US want to in-house more of of this production and be less reliant on these global supply chains which as we've seen are subject to disruption Bob, what is the prospect of production moving from the likes of Taiwan and Korea to China and into the US and the EU? Yeah, I think I think over the kind of medium term, um, uh, very high. So, you know, so kind of can it be done? Well, yes, but, you know, governments are going to have to throw uh, a lot of money at it through subsidies. And I think there's a caveat here. Even then, you know, you might not end up with the most cutting edge technology, So at the moment in the US, we've got the CHIPS Act that secures about, well, between about 30 to 37 billion dollars in federal funding for manufacturing and R&D. And then we've got local subsidies, I think, at the state level, which will probably go uh, on top of this. TSMC has said it will build a five nanometer 
fab uh, in Arizona. You know, that's going to spend about 12 billion US dollars. Uh, it does, of course, though, it kind of, I guess, pales a bit in comparison to the kind of fabs that are actually in Taiwan at the moment. You know, those cost more like in the region of $20 billion per factory or per fab. Uh, and, you know, when the US fabs are completed, they are actually going to be somewhat behind the latest factories in Taiwan. You know, one illustration, I think, showing, you know, how hard it is to catch up. Uh, turn to the EU, you know, the EU wants a quote-unquote digital digital decade, uh, and it's talking about maybe subsidising production to the tune of about 20 billion euros. Um, there's a question though, for both the US and EU, though. You know, it's not just about spending this once off. You've got to basically kind of commit to spending this sort of money almost year after year if you want to kind of stay close to the, the, the top end. But, you know, national security concerns are playing into that kind of uh, that, that dynamic you've discussed there for, for China, uh, the EU uh, and the US. And you know, we think China is willing to keep on providing money on this front. And you know, US-China tensions are clearly feeding into this as a priority for China, given the kind of fear that China could potentially be kind of cut out of leading, leading edge technology that might you know, hinder its development. Uh, uh, going forward brilliant and certainly no doubt that it is an increasing focus of, of policymakers both in china and in the us and the eu and we hear an increasing amount of communication from the biden administration on this as a as a national security consideration so i'm sure we're going to hear more um, about this very important industry but bob and sri thank you both very much for joining the podcast that's about all we have time for this week. Thank you for listening to Macro Matters. Uh, remember that we have a mailbox, macromatters at aberdeenstandard.com, and we'd love to hear from you with feedback on the podcast. Don't forget to like or subscribe on your podcast platform. We're on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, Google Podcasts, wherever you get your podcasts from. But until next time, goodbye and good luck out there. Please note that email is not a secure form of communication, so don't send any personal or sensitive information. This podcast is provided for general information only and assumes a certain level of knowledge of financial markets. It is provided for information purposes only and should not be considered as an offer, investment recommendation or solicitation to deal in any of the investments or products mentioned herein and does not constitute investment research. The views in this podcast are those of the contributors at the time of publication and do not necessarily reflect those of Aberdeen Standard Investments. The value of investments and the income from them can go down as well as up and investors may get back less than the amount invested. Past performance is not a guide to future returns. Return projections are estimates and provide no guarantee of future results.